You're listening to DevOps and Docker Talk, and I'm your host, Brett Fisher. I'm a DevOps dude, a course creator, and an open source maintainer in the world of container and cloud native DevOps. These episodes are edited down audio only versions of my YouTube live show that you can join every Thursday at brett.live. This podcast is made possible by my Patreon members. I'd like to thank all of you patrons for your continued support. It means a lot. Your podcast player should have the show notes for this episode, including links to the original show on YouTube, topics or tools we might discuss, how to support this show with Patreon, and links to get discount coupons on all my courses. You can always get those notes and links at brettfisher.com. In this episode, I'm joined by Michael Irwin, the Senior Manager for DevRel at Docker Inc. You might recognize Michael because he has been on this show before and he's been a Docker captain for years now. So we've probably discussed things on this show, if not been in other events together. And he's just a great guy and has a ton of real world experience with Docker, Kubernetes and other container tooling. In this episode, we're acting as if you haven't listened to any of my Docker-related podcasts this year, and that what if you went in a time capsule from a year ago to now, and you wanted to catch up within an hour or so of all the things Docker Inc. did in 2022. And it's a big list. In fact, the list was so big, we ended up skipping a lot of the little things, little nuanced features or slight subtle changes and things, and had to go for the big ticket items. As just a taste of what this episode is going to cover, we include the biggest thing I think of 2022, the Docker extensions, possibly the second biggest thing of 2022, which is Docker Hub now supports OCI artifacts like Helm charts, volumes, and the new WebAssembly type images. They have new features we cover, including hardened Docker desktop, for more secure environments where you have tighter requirements on exactly what local developers can do, the tilt.dev acquisition for helping with local microservices on Kubernetes, the release of Docker desktop for Linux desktops, finally, other things, including a new website for listing all of the CVEs in official images and moving image management inside of the Docker daemon to ContainerD and what benefits that will give us. Other things, including build kit, like the remote cache advancements, including a whole bunch of new backends for caching in your builds, and the image rebase feature with a dash dash link option is quite interesting. We do have a few demos if you want to watch the live show, but most of this we just describe the things rather than demoing them. And even after making this list, I realized that there was so much going on this year that Docker's really finally found their pacing their rapid improvement. And according to some online articles, they evidently have somewhere around 100 million annual revenue. And that's a great thing for long-term stability of the company. So many of us are very excited about that leaked, maybe true, maybe not true revenue value, because what we really want is for Docker Inc. to stay around and keep making great developer tooling. And that's what they definitely did in 2022. So I hope you enjoy this episode with Michael Irwin of Docker. Hello, my name is Brett. So today is a special episode because we get to talk all about Docker the entire time. And a lot of this stuff I'm learning with you because there is a ton to talk about. All right, let's get to it. 
Welcome to the show, Michael Irwin. Thanks for having me, Brett. Wow. So you've seen Michael. You've seen Michael around here before. Have you never? Have you not had applause when you like, get on a show before? Is that I new? Know. That, that may be new. Yeah. All right. So we're both in Virginia. We are hours apart, although we never we have to usually go halfway around the world to see each other to a conference. Michael, he was first a Docker captain like me years and years ago, and then got hired by Docker recently, and yeah. is now moving in DevRel manager. What's your what's your job responsibilities now? Yeah. So so when I started at Docker, I was an engineering manager and uh, have kind of at the tail end of that transition now. So my official title is going to be senior manager for our DevRel team and heading up our DevRel team. So I'm pretty excited about it. Yeah. So if you're someone who's interested in, by the way, starting a Docker community, or if you're such a fan of Docker and you talk about it everywhere and you blog about it and you make videos and you just do all the things, you could be considered for the captain's program and you can go to this guy for that. All that information, by the way, is on their website about the community stuff. But that's how we met each other and we've been yeah. friends ever since. So I'm glad you're back. I was actually looking back. It's been a few years since you've been on the show. It's been that long. Wow. Yeah. I mean, there's so many people at Docker now. It's hard to keep up. <laughs> y'all are true. hiring like yeah. crazy. And y'all, there's this phenomenon. I, there's a, there needs to be a, a rule about this, like some Occam's razor or something like that. We need something like that for this phenomenon, which is, as engineers, once we learn a tool and we found the way that we want it to work for us, we tend to sort of slack off keeping up to date with all the new version stuff. We don't, you know, everything in our lives, I've got a, I've got a thousand tools on my machine that are all getting updates all the time. Every day, Brew has a dozen updates on my Mac. There's no way to keep up. And so one of the challenges I think we all have is that we learn a tool and within a couple of years, that tool might have completely added a ton of new functionality and useful features for you, but you're not relearning the tool because we're all on to the next thing. And that's, I think, one of the challenges with Docker, right? Yeah, and I'll add to that too, especially kind of, especially with Docker's history the last couple of years when it sold off the enterprise parts and in many ways, just keeping, in many ways, Docker went into a keeping the lights on survival mode for a period of time. And now that the company is growing again, and it's actually, we've tripled in size in the last year, year and a half, and we've had five acquisitions. I mean, so there's been a lot going on. And so now the innovation wheel is spinning again. Yeah. And so for many people, they didn't see a lot coming out of Docker. And all of a sudden now there's a lot coming out of Docker and it's hard to keep up with it. So yeah, it's definitely kind of an interesting position to be in at this point. Yeah, but you know, Docker loves to brag about the number of downloads because Docker images are just a staple in the industry still on the Docker Hub, and it's usually in the many of millions, or I'm sorry, billions of downloads or whatever pulls. And you know, we're going to talk about some of this stuff: the Docker Desktop Extensions, Docker Desktop 52 Docker Desktop Extensions. That's probably more now than it was in August. We have a lot of these OS-specific improvements. I'm going to just get some of this stuff out of the way. Another one talking about what the extensions and the SDK for extensions are. By the way, for those of you who did not see that show, we had a show all on extensions in the summer, and that's gonna happen a lot. Mike's colleagues at Docker have been on this show multiple times this year. I mean, Docker's in the name of the show, so we gotta talk about Docker at some point. But we had separate shows on this, so if you look back and search for Docker extensions, I think it's my pick for 2022, like the feature of 2022 for Docker. However, we also have, this list. <laughs> and this list is only partially complete. So we don't plan on a three hour stream today. So I'm going to do a little work after this to extend this list to put some of the things that I still didn't get on this list. We're actually going to talk a little bit about the future maybe at the end there. But Michael, let's just get, th I feel like we just need yeah. to jump in, jump let's in do it. fast and go quick because I respect people's time and we've only got about an hour. But we're going to rapid fire down the list. 
So let's get into it. By the way, these are in no particular order. I thought about making it reverse chronological so we could start from the, the latest stuff. This is one of the latest things. So we'll just talk about this first. If you've taken my course, you heard me talk about artifacts. And if you've been in software long enough, especially as a developer, you know about things, JFrog, all these other artifact stores. We've had them for a while. Artifacts is like this nebulous term for things downstream. At least that's my point of view on it. And we all think of Docker Hub as the place to store our Docker images, but there's all these other things. Michael, what is this really doing for us? OCI artifacts, yeah. why does that even matter? Yeah, good question. So, I mean, yeah, as you said, Docker Hub in many ways has been seen as the place to store container images, but as the ecosystem has grown, there's been other types of things that we want to store. So for example, Helm charts or WASM modules, or there's lots of different types of things, OPA policies. Even years ago, and I think actually I'd, on one of my appearances on your show, we were talking about Docker app, and it was kind of this idea of, hey, let's package up a compose file and ship it as an image. But in many ways, it wasn't the typical container image. It couldn't run by itself and whatnot. So it was a way to hack images to share content. And so what OCI artifacts basically allow us to do is to recognize that there are different types of things that we want to push, that we want to share, that aren't just the normal container images like Helm charts, OPA policies, et cetera. And it's part of that specification, so it allows the ability to share, distribute, pull, push, et cetera, to be fairly generic and to support lots of different types of things. And so we're pretty excited to have that support in Docker Hub. Some of the other registries have had support for a while. Of course, Docker Hub with it being kind of the first registry, it took a while to get all, a lot of the internal pieces ready for it and working on it, but we're pretty excited about it. And it's gonna unlock a, a lot of neat capabilities to be able to build and share other types of things still using Docker Hub. Yeah, and in fact, on this blog article, I believe one of the examples is Helm. Mm -hmm. And if you're not aware, if you're not, Helm is not for everyone, by the way, but, and it is Kubernetes specific, and it is a templating and engine to create really complex apps in a YAML file, or, well, it's always going to be many, many YAML files. But we don't have to keep those in and get repos, but we can also put them on registries. And there's this... I mean, if you've been around like us for a while, you've known about the struggles of using Helm first in it's the old mode of Helm chart, pushing and pulling, and now the new OCI standard mode. And the goal here is that every registry can support Helm. And, the, and almost like the first step, this wasn't really a Helm problem. This was a yeah. registries need to be, support other types of things problem, right? And yep. so I feel like that the first step, in the first step years and years ago, Helm just sort of hacked their own way to make it work. And then they, or I don't know who helped the industry come up with the OCI artifact store standard, but that extended the registry standard so that we can all support these other things. And then Helm had to add back in OCI registry support. But then the next problem was, is not everyone, not every registry supported it because this is a relatively new idea. Some registries, I'm not going to name any names, uh -huh, but Red Hat's. That doesn't always work the way you expect. And of course, Hub didn't do it at all. So it's great that we're now merging. I wouldn't say that everything is fixed and everything is wonderful because I imagine we got to wait for the other registries. I also use GitHub Container Registry and it had its own issues with this over the years. I have not tested it you know, in the last six months, but there's always these weird little quirks with just simply storing a Helm chart, which is not a required workflow, by the way, people. You don't have to do this, but one common way is to store your essentially your templates for Kubernetes inside of the registry as an artifact, just like you do your images and version them just like you do your images. And I know and have worked with many teams that have done that. Not everyone does that. You don't have to do that, especially if you're doing GitOps. You sometimes point at 
repos with something like Argo or Flux. But this is really cool. And I'm excited to see the other types of artifacts we all come up with. I am been voting for compose files for the longest time. Volume support, That's a, that, I think that was actually mentioned in this article, although mm-hmm. we don't really technically, I don't believe we technically have a standard for it, but at least oh, it yeah. does work. We'll talk about extensions in a little bit, but we'll get into that. Yeah. So again, it's kind of yeah, this idea of being able to push and share different types of content. So yeah, Helm charts, if I were setting up a Helm repo, for example, I would have to actually run a web server to serve those charts and everything, but now I can leverage all the same distribution channels. I'm already using it for the container images and other things. So pretty exciting stuff here. Yeah. All right. That's one. Boom. We've got, we've got 30 more to do. No big deal. <laughs> All right. So that's a big deal, though. It may not impact you directly today. We're going to go down the, going from the top of the list down. The next one is Wasm, which we just got off a call. You were actually hosting a call where Docker was talking with the captains about Wasm or WebAssembly. We should probably use yeah. the full word. This community may not even be aware of really what WebAssembly is, what's your 30-second elevator pitch on WebAssembly? Why does the industry even care? Yeah, so typically a lot of folks have heard of WebAssembly and the use case of bringing native code into the browser. But over the last year or two, there's been more interest to take that, the ability to take these binary formats and run them in other locations. Because WebAssembly runs in a pretty secure sandbox environment and those modules are portable. And so how can we leverage a lot of the learnings and and whatnot that come from WebAssembly and now run them in other locations, other use cases. So it's still a pretty early technology, early capability. And I'm not suggesting everybody just go and rewrite all their applications and start running them at WebAssembly. But what we're wanting to do at Docker is to be part of the conversation. And again, just like we were talking about with the OCR artifact support, how can we leverage a lot of the tools and the things that developers are already using for this new technology. We think the containers and WebAssembly modules are complementary. They work together. They are different technologies, of course. WebAssembly is as fast and portable and lightweight and everything. And we can spend an entire another show talking about it as well. And I think you've got one coming up soon too. So, but yeah, so we're pretty excited to be able to support WebAssembly and, and running it directly in Docker. Yeah. I mean, to me, WebAssembly is like, let me ask this real quick, because I'm actually... Sure. I'm saving my learning for the actual episode I'm going to have with <laughs> Nigel Poulton. We're going to have a, by the way, that's a future episode. We're going to have Nigel talking about Docker and Wasm. And yeah. I'm basically going to act like the noob student because I am a new student. I do not, I've not used WebAssembly before this because it's mostly been a front end thing and I'm not really a front end developer. I'm not really, I'm still a pretend developer on all levels. So on the front end, I've never had performance problems because the apps I make personally are not that fast, aren't that complicated. Sure. So I understand, you know, the lower that we compile all of our apps down to, you know, closer and closer to assembly and all the way into the bytecode, that's just going to reap performance benefits all the time. However, us as humans haven't always liked to write those low-level codes. And so we've always had, we've always made up new higher-level languages. We continue to make up new higher-level languages. However, sometimes that comes at a performance cost, right? And I had a conversation earlier with someone that was like, why do we... I'm still not even sure why I would need WebAssembly on the back end. And that's, I think, what the industry, like you're saying, the industry is still trying to figure this out, right? What are the good use cases for Wasm? It's, I think you and I, I don't know if you were at the Kelsey Hightower thing with Scott yep. at uh, KubeCon, but there was this basically this little hangout with the CEO of Docker and Kelsey Hightower from Google. And they were sort of talking about WebAssembly and containers. And Kelsey had a really good mindset, like he always does, a really healthy, non-fanatic, non-buzzworthy sort of thought process where he was saying you know, that, that We've all established this workflow of containers being the deployment art object. It's the artifact. We have all of our CI and CD pipelines are all revolving around containers now. 
It's assumed in cloud native that you're using containers in most cases, and we don't need to throw all that away just because we're compiling down to a different file type. And obviously there's a little more to Wasm than that because you need an executor and all that. But he was really breaking it down to saying, if the developer chooses to make a Wasm app, why should the entire ops and dev DevOps chain and the build chain, all, why should all those things completely change? They probably shouldn't. And so the idea that Docker can provide us a way, at least today, to package it up in an image and then in the future run it hopefully in Kubernetes and other places, just like another container, yeah. that's, that sounds perfect to me. That's exactly what I would want as a DevOps person. Yep, and, and that's pretty much exactly what we announced with the technical preview. But the final container image is only about three megabytes in size. That's the size of this entire WASM application that has an HTTP server. So. With the HTTP server, the source code, the MySQL connector and everything, to have an entire application about three megabytes, that's hard to beat. Which one of the cool things, again, about WebAssembly is I don't have to compile for ARM64 and AMD64 and all the different architectures I might be leveraging because the WebAssembly format itself is portable. And when I run this, I specify a runtime. And what that's going to do is it changes a little bit how the application runs. And we've got this on the technical preview docs and the blog and everything. But basically what's going to happen is instead of running as a normal container, that WASM module is extracted out and then dropped onto a WASM runtime. And that's how it runs. And so the cool thing is that just with just a little bit of extra config, I can run full WASM applications and they network the same way as you know, a normal container. I can still talk to my database and giving us all the information there. So. Again, just like you're saying, the whole idea is let's leverage all the tooling and the capability and the workflows and the processes that developers already know and love for now a slightly different technology without the developers having to understand under the hood how it's all working. So yeah, we're pretty excited about it. Again, it's still early days in the technology, but we're excited to be able to help out in this space. Yeah. I mean, so here's the thing for me. Here's like the sales pitch for me to teams that are even thinking about this or even curious. I'm talking specifically from an ops and a DevOps standpoint, because I'm not usually advising the developers on how to architect the internals of their app or whether they should go WASM or not, right? I'm usually the person that's trying to optimize their build chain, speed up their deployment times, reduce the size of their images, reduce the security of their images. So when I think of something like a Node.js app or a Ruby app, which are, you know, they're easy languages to write in. They have yeah. lots of functionality and lots of dependencies. You usually have a ton of dependencies. And... If it would be possible for me to ship those as a single binary file, rather than, I mean, I have Ruby apps that I've seen that are two gig, full of oh, yeah. dependencies and vulnerabilities and just hundreds, if not thousands of vulnerabilities in there. And if I can package all that down into a binary, not even include a shell, not include any system utilities that yep. might be vulnerable. Granted, it doesn't mean that there's not vulnerabilities in my code, but it sure. means that... <laughs> It's going to be a lot harder for someone to exploit that if it's all yeah. inside of a WASM binary than it is if it's just the open SSL version or whatever, you know, whatever the latest hack is, the latest curl vulnerability. And I love that. We've, I think that's one of the reasons I would advocate for Golang or Rust or something like these modern languages that assume, or not assume, but at least provide a very easy path to build you a single little tiny binary that you can distribute. This almost, I feels like what this does is this gives that ability to all well, all the ecosystems that WebAssembly supports without yeah. each own ecosystem having to build their own specific build chain and tooling and process for all of that stuff. I don't know. Does that sound like a viable argument? Yeah, I mean, and that's certainly one major aspect of it too. And I would say even the security model even goes beyond that because, for example, in the browser, when a WebAssembly module runs, 
it only has access to the things that the browser gives it access to. So like it, it can't access the file system. It can't do a lot of different things. And there's a whole mechanism there called WASI. It's the Web Assembly Systems Interface. And again, at the end of the day, the module only has access to the things that it's been given access to. And so when you're running in these WASM runtimes, you can limit how much control or how much you know points to the underlying host and even the network and all these different things. So you can lock it down in ways that you actually can't even do with traditional Unix containers. So there's a really interesting security model that goes along there. Again, leveraging a lot of the lessons learned when, or when it was originally built and developed for the browser environment. So yeah, there, again, there's still a lot of evolution that needs to occur, but, but yeah, it's, it's pretty exciting stuff there. Uh, security wise, it's, it's more compelling than Unix containers. And again, I think it's that sandboxing environment and that WASI, that systems interface is, makes it quite locked down there. For sure. Yeah. I don't know what these rules look like. That would be maybe part of the WASM episode. How low level and complex is this? Because that's one of the struggles for developers is always, you know, I would love to be able to like control, fine grain control the security of my app, but I don't understand all these tools, set comp, kernel, features, app armor, SE Linux. Like there's just, you name it all, you go down this list and there's just a staggering amount of complexity all of a sudden. And so most developers, you know, they just don't do it, <laughs> right? They're not yep. going to, they're not going to, they're going to only do it when it becomes a functionality problem for their app. And like you said, containers run with, even though containers run with less security privileges than a regular app on Linux, which is one of my arguments for containers in general, is that they automatically reduce the functionality capable for an individual app. But at the same time, it's still very much an opt, like you have to opt out of things, right? There's still very much, you have to enable set comp, you have to manually do that in Kubernetes, at least today you do. And there's all this other stuff. So I love this idea of a universal security boundary that we can all maybe wrap our hands around and comprehend. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. But again, I don't want to get too far down, but there's some interesting like performance improvements that even come. If I'm running multiple WASM modules in the same runtime, and if I need to communicate between them, traditionally when processes communicate with other processes, you're having to either pipe things between or create files. And there's a lot of memory copies and everything that's going on. But when you're leveraging the same runtime and a lot of the sandboxing that goes along there, you can start to do things like shared memory. And, and there's just a lot of really cool things that provide a lot of really neat performance benefits. A lot of this is still being developed and still being evolved within the WebAssembly space. But I'll admit when I went to the WASM day at KubeCon, because I'm still ramping up in, in this space as well, my mind was blown just at the number of things that are going on and the performance improvements and component models, all these different things. There's some really cool architectures that, that are coming our way. So pretty exciting stuff. Yeah, for sure. Okay. so. We're going to remember you all, if you're interested in WebAssembly and Docker more, we're going to have a future episode about that. At least that's the plan. So stay tuned, jump on the Patreon is you can get from there, or you can just go below and find the Patreon link and you will get my email about who's going to be on the show and who's going to be on the podcast every week. So jump on that stuff. If you want to, if you want to know about the upcoming stuff or jump on the discord server, where I also list, they have an event system now in discord. And then you can see that it's pretty, it's pretty neat in there anyway. So I want to answer some questions real quick, but we're going to get yeah. to extensions. We're going to talk about those. That's not our first time on this show talking about extensions. It's probably the 100th time just this year, but I want to show off some new advancements and we'll talk about some new extensions, but real quick, the question is asking about a live stream where I can work on a real project. I save a lot of that stuff for my courses. So if you are interested in that, you can get a very deep discount on any of my courses where I do a bunch of project work with you, showing you those in lectures, that stuff's below. If you're asking for me to do a live stream for free on YouTube about it, that is not in the plan, but I like the idea and I'll think more about it and see if we can't come up with something for 2023 because we're already booked out on this show for the next couple of months. But let's see, what else? What happens after we create a Docker image? What are the different things that we can achieve other than creating pods out of it? Okay, so you, 
really just containers. That's really the focus of images right now. You can use Docker export to technically turn it into files on your host file system or put it into a tarball. And it's just a bunch of files, really, what's in an image. But I mean, that's the reason you use images, you build images, is to run containers, whether that's in a Kubernetes pod or a Docker Compose file or however you want to run your containers. Every cloud now has dozens of ways to run containers. So you can run them in functions. If you want to do serverless, you can do functions in it with a Docker image. So lots of ways yeah. to do that. Maybe I'll jump in there. So it's been interesting to see all the different use cases of running containers that are beyond just the traditional, I'm going to run this app in production or something like that. In fact, a couple of years ago, I was working with a friend of mine who's an accounting professor and he knows how to write a little bit of code. He's like, I wrote this Python script that ingests a, an Excel document and then goes out to the Stock Exchange Commission and gets a lot of data, generates this report and hooray, I can output some stuff. How do I share that with my colleagues who aren't nerdy, who don't know how to do everything? I'm like, I have an answer for you. <laughs> and so we containerize it. And uh, we made just a little Windows batch file because everybody was running Windows and dropped the, the CLI command. And so he created this container image and all of his colleagues installed Docker Desktop and they would just double click this little batch file and it would mount in the spreadsheet and kind of go from there. So, you know, he was using images to basically share a, here's a little application and the runtime that application needs, not with the intent of, hey, I'm going to run this in production, but it's just a little utility script that I'm going to share with my friends. And images and containers made that portable and allowed him to be able to share it with his friends. It was pretty, pretty awesome use case. And we're starting to see more and more of that kind of stuff where, hey, I want to share something with my friends that isn't going to be running in production in Kubernetes or ECS or whatever. So yeah, let us know if, if you have use cases like that. I'd love to hear them as well. Yeah, there's a related, a little bit of a related question. Do you plan to support other types of containers besides Wasm? Like simple binaries like Nomad does. So a system service, mm -hmm. I mean... Mike can answer this, but that's not a container. <laughs> so, I mean, Docker is containers. So it would, I don't know. Well, and so I think one of the things that we're trying to also do with this, this WebAssembly thing is kind of being known more than just the container company, that we're a developer tooling company. And so, yeah, we can, I mean, because at the end of the day, the way you run Linux containers looks different than the way you run Windows containers. And so now these WebAssembly containers, I mean, they're all different runtimes but it yep. all provides the same interface, the same abstraction that developers are working with. So as of today, yeah, we're working and looking at WebAssembly, but down the road, who knows? There, there may be other types of things that, that we might look at. Nothing that you know I know about and can announce today right. kind of thing. But, um, right. but you know, who knows? As, as the ecosystem continues to grow, if there's other types of runtimes, especially you know, this container dshim, that's really how we're doing this. As there's other runtimes that, ecosystem builds out, we might certainly look at how do we fold those in and make it easier for developers to use. So. Yeah, that's a good point, by the way. And we, we should mention this because it's not a Docker specific thing, but ContainerD has many shims for extra functionality in ContainerD. You may not be able to access it from the Docker command line. You might have to look into ContainerD itself, but you know, D Docker, in essence, it uses ContainerD underneath it. Kubernetes uses ContainerD to run its containers by default yeah. nowadays. I mean, you can still use DockerD, you can still use Cryo, but ContainerD, I think, is becoming the standard, the sort of the default answer for Kubernetes. Yep. And it has things where you can run full VMs, you can run encrypted, you can have encrypted images, you can do all these things in ContainerD now because it has that plugin model. And there's actually a separate question we had here around, I'm confused from the past two years, should I use Docker with Kubernetes after acquired by Mirantis? Most of the industry changing their containers to use ContainerD. Can you please talk about it? Ooh. <laughs> okay. So th there's a couple different things that I think are mixed in there. So when 
Docker sold off the enterprise pieces to Marantis. What that basically was is all of the operations pieces. So our earlier days of Docker was trying to do too many things and it was hard to focus. And so we were doing developer tooling, we were doing build systems, we were doing, here's a managed Kubernetes and swarm service and registries and that there was just too much going on. And it ended up having us, you know, we started competing against big names that we just couldn't compete with. And so decided, hey, let's go back to the roots. Let's go back to the developer tooling. And so they sold off the, those, and we say the enterprise pieces are really more the operations and registry and that kind of stuff and refocus back on the developer tooling. So if you need an operations tooling and management system, Marantis still sells their services and it's a great product as well. And there's lots of other products out there as well too. As far as the swap to container D from Docker, that's actually been something that's been years in the making. And it was largely a marketing buzz and oh my goodness, you know, Docker shims being removed from Kubernetes. Well, Docker actually started that when they spun out the container engine and made container D in the first place. Because right. recognize, hey, not every system, every environment needs to be the ability to build images and to do everything that the Docker engine has. A lot of environments just need the ability to pull and run containers. That's it. And that's, at the end of the day, what Container D is designed to do. Sure, it's got that plug-in mechanism and whatnot. But And so the swap to for Kubernetes use Container D is something that's been in the works for years, and it just now has rolled out. Because again, when you're running Kubernetes in a production environment, you want to minimize your security footprint and the things that might happen. So, you know, just run containers, use Container D. Yeah, I will add to that and say that if you're someone who, maybe you're still using a traditional, I would say traditional, because there's lots of other tools now to build images, but a traditional build situation where you want to build in Kubernetes and Container D doesn't do that. Again, there's lots of other options, but a traditional way was to put Docker in there. We all started with Docker yeah. D as our container runtime because we didn't have any other ones that, you know, back when Do Kubernetes started. And even just looking at on the Kubernetes website, you can see on the list of runtimes, the Marantis container runtime, which is, to me, it's functionally equivalent to the Docker D because the, the core of Docker daemon is the Mobi project that's open source. Marantis builds that and relabels it as their own runtime and they do support that shim. So if you're someone who you think I there's features in Docker that I need in my Kubernetes for some reason, even though a lot of us are moving to container D, if you mm -hmm. have a good reason for Docker D, maybe there's some edge case scenario, or maybe you wanna build with the same runtime that does other things. Maybe that's your setup. So you can still do that. You would uh, technically in the newer versions of Kubernetes, you would need to remove Docker D, but then you would just add back in the Marantis container runtime, which is functionally equivalent. It's the same core code. And you would have to hook that into Kubernetes. And there's basically a document on how to do that. You would install that with the shim that now Marantis is supporting. It used to be a community effort. Now Marantis has volunteered to support that open source. So it's not that you can't run the Docker engine. It's just it's now maintained by Marantis. It's called something different, yep. but it's the exact same stuff that you would use Docker, local Docker run with. And it does work. I've tested it. <laughs> it's just most of us have evolved to other tools so that we don't need a very large runtime on our Kubernetes clusters. And we save that Docker runtime for local use or for human use, I guess I would say. Anyway, yeah. So we had a lot of episodes on that. Actually, we've had multiple full long episodes. If you're very still very curious about why all that happened, if you want the backstory from Justin Carmack himself, who's the CTO of Docker, he was on this show a couple of years ago when that announcement came out. So be, again, go back and search and you'll probably find those episodes, but that's a great question. Yeah. All right, let's get to extensions. I'm excited Boom. about this one. All right, so extensions, if you haven't seen extensions, I think we could explain it for five minutes. So in your Docker GUI, this is a Docker desktop only thing. In your Docker GUI, 
you have this little extensions list. It starts empty and it's your job to go into the marketplace. By the way, there is a marketplace now. You can even view it on the web. All this is on Hub. So another artifact type on Hub, I suppose. And there are all these different options. I think we're, I don't know what, like close to 60 or something or 70. I don't even know what you're at. I don't know what the current number is. Yeah. In fact, I, did, I didn't update to 4.50. We just got a new release of Docker Desktop today and I have not installed it. So I'm technically on an older version, but there's all this stuff and it's incredible what you can do. Honestly, they asked us captains, I think back when you were still a captain or it's not a Docker employee. And we were all like, they were asking us for ideas and we came up with a mm-hmm. couple, but I would have, I could have not cre- made up this massive list of Adding vCluster, who's been on this show, which allows you to have virtual Kubernetes with inside of Kubernetes. It's actually pretty amazing. Running a OpenShift server inside of Docker Desktop, you can do that. Installing Slim AI or running Lens inside here. I wouldn't even think that you would want to do that, but you can. There's just a telepresence. There's all this stuff, developer tools, CI tools, deployment. There's just a ton. It's, I mean, it's it, each one of these could deserve their own episode. However, Docker makes a few official ones. And one of the big recent feature releases is adding the resource usage. So I can now see more detailed resource usage of what's going on. You get all these interesting stats, you get charts, and there's just, it goes on and on and on and on. The one that I'm kind of excited about was something that I had the idea for a few years ago. I wrote a shell script and then the Docker team actually took it and ran with it and made it so much better as a Docker extension where you can now back up and restore Docker volumes on your local machine. And you can even clone your local Docker volumes to a remote Docker server, which is also amazing. There's just a lot going on. So if you haven't checked out extensions, we're not, this is not, we've had the extension show. You can go back and watch it. We demoed some of them, even like just simple little tools like Trivi, which you could normally run from the command line. But when you run it here, it gives you an image. It gives you stuff to look at rather than just a command line of text. So there's Sneak's got a tool in here as well. There's lots of other security stuff. Right. So there's a ton here. Again, I don't know if you have anything to say to that, Michael, but it's- Yeah, it's just been fun to watch the ecosystem take and run with the idea. And yeah, the, the fact that anybody can build extensions. I made a fun little game, which keeps getting brought up in the captain's group quite a bit called Flappy Doc, you know, just like Flappy Bird, but it's Moby and Molly. And so, I mean, you can really build anything as an extension. And it's fun to see, again, What's traditionally been difficult CLI-based interactions now have a GUI-based interaction, and it opens up a lot of these capabilities to folks that may not be quite as familiar or comfortable on the CLI. And in many ways, I think we're still at the just the start of the capabilities that will come along with this. Excited to see what 2023 is going to bring in this space too. So one of the questions was, who should care about WASM images? My answer there is at this time, only cutting-edge developers. Yeah. It's a pretty new thing. It's not new in the browser, but it's a new idea around putting it everywhere on servers and on the back end. So I would say that if you're, you know, let your, if you're not the main developer and the team or whatever, like those people are probably going to know about any new security requirements that the security team is giving them that they may have to go to something like Wasm to do. Or they might have a mandate to do it, you know, sort of an organizational wide let's lock things down or improve performance if they've got performance problems and WASM in maybe a more traditional language, like I was mentioning Node.js or Ruby or something where the performance isn't as expected, but bundling or building it down into WASM gives you all that performance advancements that you might get with things that in more modern languages that already compile into a binary. So that that's at least on my very limited understanding of it. I, as a DevOps person or an ops person, I'm not going to drive that boat. I'm going to wait on the devs to tell me they want to use WASM and then I'll learn how to support it. I'll learn how to, yep. you know, have our build chains or servers yep. support WASM. 
Yeah. And I'd agree with that as, as well, too. I mean, it's still pretty early days. I mean, so definitely feel free to to play and experiment with it. Am I going to personally go and rewrite all my applications, you know, into in Wasm? Probably not yet, but I'm probably going to experiment and just poke around with it a little bit. I'll add one other use case that we've seen quite a bit is systems that are wanting to add like plugin architectures to their systems. So for example, Envoy Service Mesh, they're adding the ability to extend the service mesh and to kind of run code within the service mesh. And basically they're running a Wasm runtime and they say, hey, if you want to listen to events or, you know, extend our system, here's the interface to do so. And so then allows developers that want to plug into that, they can write their extensions, you know, these plugins in a variety of different languages, any language that can output the WASM, and then Envoy can ingest that. So that's a very different use case than, hey, I'm going to run my application in straight up WebAssembly, but that's a growing use case that we're starting to see more and more of as well too. So yeah. So one of the questions was, when would you need to install extensions? You can actually just go look in the Docker Hub. They now have, when you want to search for things in Docker Hub, they now have three options. The images was the first thing. We all had the images. Mm -hmm. Plugins has been around a long time, but that's for Docker plugins, specifically to the Docker engine or command line or whatever. I'm not sure exactly which one that is or both. But then there's extensions. And that's what we're talking about here. This is for Docker desktop. It's GUI extensions that will, in the background, they actually run a container and then they present a bunch of, a bunch of and usually they present an inter interface. I don't know if we have any GUI-less ones, but everything that you could possibly think of, I guess, for local dev, there's just tons and tons of stuff here. So I would say, look through this list for the tools you already use today yeah. and see if they have an extension. You know, Ufizi allows you to spin up temporary staging environments, basically, or proof of concept environments, right? In, you know, with basically with a one line you are kind of thing, but now you can do it straight inside the GUI. Octeto also does dev environments. So you can spin up dev environments remotely and use them locally like they were actually on your machine, but you're actually using a remote cluster. There's just a ton here. Portainer, which we've all known from like Swarm and Docker days, and now it supports Kubernetes. It's one of, I think, the most popular. I, you heard, I think you were talking today about the number of installs or something, and Portainer had a lot. Yeah, so actually in the Docker desktop release that came out earlier today, when you open up the extensions marketplace, it actually will display how many installs a particular extension has had, and uh, you can sort by most installed. And so Portainer's, yeah, right at the it's not the very top of the list. It's actually kind of funny. The disk usage one that you were showing off earlier, I think that's the number one. And it was funny too, because we built that internally as more just like a demo of kind of, hey, here's what's capable with the SDK. And it ended up being the number one favorite so far. So we've kind of been surprised by it. Yeah, just being able to search logs in the GUI uh, mm -hmm. or look at stats of a container, that kind of stuff. Yeah. We, I mean, we all, if you've been around long enough, we had other GUIs in the past that did this but none of them were like native built into the Docker desktop product. So this is actually pretty great. And like a lot of ideas at Docker, it just started out with an idea at the team. They just were like, well, what if we could allow other people to extend and enhance our Docker desktop system? And it's actually yeah. turned out to be quite useful. Yeah, Newman, I think is one of the newest ones on there is uh, for running Postman. If you're a web developer and you've got to use, mm -hmm. probably have heard of Postman, you probably use Postman, but now you don't have to necessarily do it all separately. You can do it right inside the yeah. GUI there with Docker Desktop. And you can uninstall and reinstall these. There's version updates. You have to do all that kind of stuff as well. And Docker continues to enhance all this so that it's easier to use them. And, you know, because we're now getting to the point where I have to actually clean my extension list out because I'll end up having too many running and uh, I need to keep it small. You know, maybe that's a feature request. Is there an ability to just mm -hmm. temporarily disable it without installing it? I don't know if that's a feature. I don't think there is today, but... Yeah. Maybe. Yeah, because some of them like opening up or running an OpenShift cluster, I don't always want that, but I also don't necessarily yeah. just want to uninstall the extension every time. So, all right, next on the list, let's talk about dev environments. Now we've talked about dev environments before. 
on this show back, I don't know, it was last year, maybe, or the year before, maybe when it first showed up. It's been a couple of years, but what's the elevator pitch on this? So Docker dev environments are the ability for us to build, share, and kind of run an entire development environment. So traditionally, if I needed to, you know, if I was wanting to share my application environment with the rest of my team, they'd have to get clone, Docker compose up, you know, whatever else from there. And so the dev environments, allows us to kind of import a project and you can kind of just say, here's the project and it will import it. And then I can also open up basically one of those containers in VS Code and make changes to the files using my IDEs. And you can continue to you know, package up and share the application. It's still in a beta stage for us. And so we're still looking to evolve and iterate the feature set as well too. So actually the items that you have on the Google Doc Drive, this year we were working on a adding a CLI because once you've got a CLI, then you know other tools can maybe start to integrate with it and we can start to build more of an ecosystem around it rather than if it's just embedded within kind of some proprietary or you have to click the certain buttons in the user interface, et cetera. So it gives us some better extension points to be able to, to do things with. So for those yeah. curious, you look in the GUI, but also that's one of the, like you're saying, one of the new things this year, Docker dev as command line, you can do Docker dev create to create a new dev environment from URL. You can actually, I don't know what one of the other, one of the other, yeah, that's one of the new things was you can use a GitHub URL to create a new source from a template, essentially a dev environment template. And then there's this new composed dev YAML, which I don't know anything about. Is that in the docs? Yeah, it, it's more or less still just a normal, I mean, it's a normal composed file. Just the dev environment is looking for a, a different default name for the file to use. So that way you can have a, a composed file for if I'm going to spin it up in a dev environment versus a non-dev environment. Again, as you're, we're experimenting and playing with the dev environment tooling, we don't want to just all of a sudden kind of pull the rug out from everybody and say, hey, you've got to change things out. So it's looking for a different file name for right now. Okay. And there's all this documentation on the mm -hmm. Docker docs. So for those that are interested more in this, there's obviously built in right inside of Docker desktop, and that'll probably take you to the docs. You can also just search the dev environments on the docs. It took yeah. me a minute, honestly, to it's sort of like when I first learned Docker, it took me a long time to actually really understand what the, what even is it doing? Why do I even need this? This is one of those things where I think it'll catch on as people try it and then understand what its use cases are a little bit better so that you can see, oh, can my team take advantage of this? Because sometimes this is just a solution to the ability for you to collaborate with your team when your team maybe doesn't have great development collaboration tools, right? I feel like that's one of the opportunities for this, but it's... You may have other tools that you've already built. I worked with a team last year that actually that looked at this, but they had such advanced collaboration features for their developers to you know share projects with each other and do all this stuff that they found out that they didn't necessarily need it in its current iteration. But like you're saying, it yep. keeps getting new features. It keeps getting enhancements. Yep. So we might see more in the future on this. Absolutely. Yeah. One of the other things that we've had two, at least two shows in the last year on the new Compose V2. So mm -hmm. for those on the podcast that are listening to the audio only on this, if you're using Docker dash compose today, just take out the dash and put in a space. You will yep. then get suddenly a new version of compose rebuilt from scratch in Golang instead of Python. And it's bundled now, not just with Docker desktop, but also with the Docker, well, it's a separate apt install. So if you're using after yum, but you can now get it on servers easier than you used to be able to, because before on servers, we would all have to use pip and other things if we wanted compose. And now it's just, it's an easier way to install. It's automatically bundled like before, but it's faster. I think every, I think they shaved off hundreds of milliseconds on oh, every yeah. command or yeah. something. It's the only way I use Compose now, like yeah. for years. So yeah. if you're not familiar, 
check out Compose V2. Same yeah, command line. And I'll say one of the other things that we're kind of excited about too is since it's all written in Go now, theoretically anybody could leverage the same parsers and packages and, and that kind of stuff that we're using to build other tools and, and whatnot on top of Compose as well. So we've seen a couple of people kind of dabble with that a little bit, but it definitely opens up some more extensibility capabilities than compared to when it was all just a Python code base. So if I do a Docker Compose with a dash, you know, creature of habit, you can set it up in Docker to alias this as well. And I think maybe if you have a new install today, I think they also do this. So a lot of you may not even realize that you're using the new version. You may be typing in the dash, but if you see that V2 there in the mm -hmm. version number, you know you're using the new version. And it's technically a space, but there's probably some sort of a alias setup there. Yeah, so that's that's great. And it keeps getting better. There are actually new commands like the PS or the LS command, rather. There are, There's increasing number of enhancements that are being added to the new version. And it's now official GA. That's the big news for this year is we can safely use it and know that the major bugs have been squashed and that the team is, you know, that's where all the future effort is going. So if you want to stay up with the latest in Docker Compose, you have to be using this new V2 stuff. All right. Hardened desktop. So mm -hmm. hardened Docker desktop. There is a, a blog post about this a ways back mm -hmm. this year. There was a couple of announcements, but one of them was this hardened desktop mode. To me, what this really is all about is for those of us that have ever had to manage IT infrastructure, I mean, I come from the world of Active Directory and group policy and managing 7,000 desktops and 1,000 servers oh. all through Windows, Microsoft Windows interfaces. That was a long time ago, over a decade ago. But one of the big things that we were always concerned with was how do we manage the policy for developer tools? Because they were always the hardest users to manage because they mm -hmm. often wanted local admin. They usually would need it to run things like Hyper-V or VirtualBox or whatever. They had very specific dev tools and we would often provide those to them. And then we would sort of have to loosen up the restrictions that they would have versus a normal user. And so one of the challenges over the years is that in really secure environments, large enterprises that are very concerned about the security of their massive amounts of developers, tens, hundreds, thousands of developers, they will often set policies specifically to the dev group. And the one thing that this does that I really like, which isn't really related to the locking down specifically, but the first step was let's get centralized settings management. So they, this blog article talks about the settings management of using a JSON file to centrally control Docker for desk, Docker desktop for Windows and Mac, and now I guess Linux, all from a JSON file. And then one of those features happens to be this enhanced container isolation feature, which you can optionally enable. Do you know anything about this? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So in many ways, what it's doing is allowing rootless container mode. And there's a lot kind of behind the scenes and that kind of stuff. But so yeah, running root inside of a container isn't running root in the Docker VM. And so it's just, it's definitely designed for the, the organizations that need that greater enhancement and don't want to be handing out root access. Because like, for example, you know, there's nothing really stopping me, assuming that I have my settings set up, I can mount my entire host directory inside of a container. And if I'm running root now, I can really change almost any file on my file system and make adjustments to that. But now with this container isolation, it prevents that sort of mechanism to be root inside the container because root inside the container is not root on the host. And mm -hmm. it uh, just provides greater levels of protection and isolation for those environments that need it. Yeah. And we're not going to see that inside the GUI ourselves, right? This is a setting that's done in the JSON file that's controlled by a central administrative authority. And this is a specific business feature too, right? Like you have to pay for this is a part of the paid plans. So all of the hardened desktop features here are part of the Docker business subscription. If your organization isn't using settings management, isn't setting the, you know, okay, we're going to do container isolation in a centralized manner, it is available as a checkbox and you can enable, disable it and whatnot. 
But if your organization is managing those settings, then that checkbox is disabled and you can't modify the setting there. So hardened desktop is kind of like an umbrella term for a couple mm. different features. So yeah, settings management and enhanced container isolation. And then like registry access management, image access management, those have been around for a little bit, but not too long. And so again, for those organizations, for example, registry access management, a lot of organizations will say, hey, we don't want to allow developers to pull from Docker Hub. We're going to run our own internal registry and we're going to set policy to say, hey, you can't pull images from Docker Hub. You can only pull it from our internal registry that contains images that we've vetted and validated and, and, and approved. And so those are the base images you can use, et cetera. So registry access management supports that use case. And what, so image access management is a similar mechanism, but it's for what sorts of images can you pull from Docker Hub? You know, we can only pull official images or verified publisher images, et cetera. So. Yeah. This is actually something that I've been hearing. You know, some of us were back in the day, Docker had a security conference for government, specifically in the United mm -hmm. States. And there would always be a lot of questions and concerns around, well, if I install this locally, what am I opening myself up to? It yeah. sounds like I have to have a lot of privileges. And how can the security team see in, you know, control or even see into a lot of the internals and what's happening? Because it essentially, you know, having Docker pull, Docker run, you can really run whatever you want if it's an image. And, yep. you know, so we, we would all get a lot of questions over time around how do I limit? How do I restrict? How do I control all this? And I think this is a great a step in that direction. I really think that once more people get to know about this, yeah. there'll probably be more teams that they'll implement this kind of tool into something like Active Directory Group Policy, and they'll have this JSON mm -hmm. file come down to all the systems and really limit things like saying, hey, the only way you can run images is from our image registry, not from Docker Hubs or whatever. Yep. There's a lot of policies that I, especially like financial companies, banks I've worked with, they're always trying to figure out a way, you know, DNS blocking, like all sorts of levels of proxying. And just yep. trying to really prevent a developer from being able to literally run everything on the internet on their local machine. Yep. Yeah, so that's really great to see. All right, we're going to do some rapid fire. So next up is Tilt. So Docker bought Tilt. Well, Docker bought the company that makes Tilt or started mm -hmm. making this open source project. And I'm just going to preface it. I'm just going to sort of elevator pitch it saying that it is an advanced local tool with a web GUI and a config file for when maybe Compose isn't enough. I feel like that's a, a sales point of, if Compose is great for you, you know, keep on doing Compose. But if you need, maybe you're doing 30 or 40 microservices and you need infinite micro control of which ones are happening at the same time, even though we've got tons of new features in, in Compose to do that for you, the Tilt app is another way to kind of do that. And it provides you this web GUI that maybe is, a, I don't know, maybe a little bit different or more enhanced than the new Docker desktop GUIs that we get. So yeah. there's a lot of there's a lot of overlap here, but I think that for a certain amount of people and Tilt's not new, it's been around a while. My understanding is it's not built in the Docker desktop yet, but yeah. stay tuned. There might be things in the future we don't know. Yeah, and Tilt was really designed for Kubernetes development environment. So if you're in a shop that tries to run Kubernetes locally and you're going to do your development out of Kubernetes, et cetera, Tilt helps do that. So for example, you know you can set up Tilt to watch a directory and whenever I make changes, go ahead and auto rebuild the container image and update the deployment to roll out that image into my Kubernetes cluster. So it, it oh, provides okay. a yeah. kind of nice development integrations with Kubernetes and tries to make that experience at least a little bit better. And it's a pretty awesome tool to do that. Yeah. So check out Tilt if you have that yep. kind of complexity and stay tuned. The next one is Docker Desktop for Linux, which we had an entire show on this year. But the short answer there is Linux desktop users get love now too. And for years, Docker has been getting requests to make Docker Desktop work on Linux. The most common question I get is, does it work in a VM like on Mac and Windows? And yes, it does. I actually had this conversation in our Discord server 
right there at devops.fan today because someone was asking about it. And basically, you know, the idea, the reason it's in a VM is so that you can use, there's multiple reasons, but one of the reasons I like is that you can use both the host Docker daemon, if you're able to install that, in parallel uh, or yep. at the same time even as the Docker desktop running in a VM. And then it also creates the exact same workflow, security boundaries and all that stuff that those of us on Mac and Windows like. And I think that you all were saying when you announced it, that that was the request you were getting from your customers was that they really wanted the same security model, same experience. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Cause then otherwise they're going to have to vet yet another process and everything else too. And then as we start to roll out features like the registry access management, hardened desktop, and these different things that we were just talking about, you know, it's the same platform that we can build and add features to regardless of what operating system it's running on. So it allows us to iterate faster. And then we also don't have to worry about, okay, what kernel version you're using or, you know, all those different things. It gives us a common platform across all the different operating systems to hopefully make your lives easier and let you focus yeah. more on development. Yeah. Again, this is not designed for servers, right? Docker desktop is for you, yep. the human, Correct. to use on your local machine. So Docker desktop for Linux doesn't mean you're going and installing this on Ubuntu in the cloud. It, you know, it's for a GUI, but I do run it. I'm primarily Mac, but I do have Linux VMs that I run a Docker desktop for Linux in, and it works great. And it's fun to use there in addition to having the local Docker installed on the host. Okay, next up, the DSO website. So the image vulnerability mm -hmm. database. Now, this is something interesting. People can explore it. They may not even know about this site. My understanding is it may not always be there. It, there's a future where it's going to be integrated into more of the products and maybe it doesn't make sense as a separate website, but for now it's there and let's talk about it. So the image vulnerability of Docker, like the way we see vulnerabilities in images has changed a lot times over the last five or so years. First we had it, then it changed, then we didn't have it on Hub, then we got it back again, but in a different form. And now we actually see it, but now we have it in Docker desktop. And so you can you have the Docker scan with Sneak in the local Docker command line. We have Docker desktop GUI now showing us vulnerabilities in the GUI when I'm looking at my containers and images right there inside the interface in the dashboard. And now we see certain things inside of Docker Hub, like the log for shell vulnerability and some of the major vulnerabilities. We see those indicated as like, this one, this image is good. It doesn't have it anymore. But this is the site that we can nerd out on. This is like the super nerd image site. <laughs> so is this just for official images? Great question. So as of right now, the DSO website, and I'll maybe provide just a little bit of background here too. So as we talked about earlier, Docker has been growing a lot as a company and we've had several different acquisitions. So one of those was a company called Atomist. And in so many ways, this DSO website is from that acquisition and it's still working on being kind of folded into the main product and whatnot. But, you know, Atomist is a fantastic tool where we get to kind of, it's an event-driven data platform that helps us be able to know when container images have been pushed and updated and okay, now let's go ahead and perform some action. Let's do a security scan. Let's, you know, check for CVs and, and publish them on the site here too. And so, yeah, we're actively looking at how to make that available for customers to use on their own container images within their own namespaces, et cetera. So, so yeah, what you see publicly are going to be the official images. And I don't think we had the verified publishers there. That's a good question. I should know the answer to that. There's a subtle complexity to all this stuff because you can see the base images and where the vulnerabilities come from, which layer the vulnerabilities in. You can learn about the vulnerability, go check it out on the, I mean, and of course, this isn't the first time we've seen this. There's been lots of other tools out there, but it's nice that this is starting to get, to show up everywhere in all the Docker tooling so that we're always aware at the right moment, right? That's always the trick, mm -hmm. knowing about the vulnerabilities in my images, in my apps, at the right moment. Obviously, we still have tools like in Visual Studio Code for scanning inside of your apps itself on the dependencies. Sneak, shout out to Sneak. They actually create a vulnerability scanner for your app code inside of it. 
for the dependencies mm-hmm. in there. This is more of an after the artifact's been built kind of scenario. But yeah, there's a lot going on here. We won't have time to jump all into it. But just so you know, all everyone, like this, this website exists. Go check it out. It's for official images. And you will also start to see some of this stuff show up in, more in Docker Desktop and Docker Hub. So yep. I think it's great. I think it, the security is, because, I think like at the KubeCon keynote, there was a conversation from Slim. I'm not sponsored by them, but Slim was mentioning how because of the rapid rise, we continue to have more and more vulnerabilities come mm-hmm. to light, or we all become aware of more vulnerabilities every year. So when you look at the CVE database each year, there's more vulnerabilities than the last, at least vulnerabilities that we found. And that's the same is true for images because images have all that same open source code. So yeah. they were just talking about how, you know, like a node image today is going to have more vulnerabilities in it than a node image two years ago. Even if you had the most up-to-date image at those times, just because of the rapid rise of, you know, maybe we're just yeah. better at finding the vulnerabilities. I, you know, who knows? Yeah. <laughs> but there's just more to deal with. I guess that's the point. Yeah. There's more to deal with. This is going to help us deal with that problem. Yep. But, yeah. And it's still the tricky problem of, okay, what do you do with the information once you've got it? And so that there's a lot to still be done in that space of, okay, I've got this list of 50 vulnerabilities, which of them are actually ones I need to worry about and whatnot. So there's still a lot of evolution that can and needs to happen in this space. And But yeah, we're excited to start making that more accessible to developers. Yeah, the, I think the core problem there is that there is so much information. There's the CVEs themselves, there's the SBOMs yep. and the dependencies and the dependency tree. And there's just so much that it's overwhelming to the average person just because a lot of the, some of this stuff is developer focused. Some of this stuff is yep. more operations focused. Yep. And it's all about, I think, whittling down the volume of information to help the person in their moment yep. deal with that problem in their moment rather than seeing a bunch of stuff that we're all going to ignore. Because the yep. one thing about CVEs, is it's, it reminds me of alert fatigue with alert systems where mm-hmm. you just keep seeing all these vulnerabilities and you, you don't know what to do about it. There's no recommendations engine that's automatically telling me autom- all the time, hey, if you just did this, you yeah. would fix that. But that's starting to happen. And that's what I think is exciting. By the way, yeah. Back on this show this year, we've had both Slim AI on who mm-hmm. they take your image and the, after it's built and they actually remove stuff from it that they think is optional. And then yep. the Wolfie project from ChainGuard is another episode on this show earlier this year, just like three months back, where the ChainGuard team, two of the founders came on the show and we talked about the Wolfie project, which is kind of a variant of Alpine that allows you to start from scratch with a more secure base image that, and I really like their idea. I really hope that project is successful. Because I'm not a huge fan of Alpine. People have heard me talk about it. It has rough edges. And Wolfie tries to solve some of those while also improving the security posture and reporting S-bombs and all that stuff. They build all the dependencies themselves. They run their own package repository for APT or APK. Anyway, whole other episode, but it exists. And it's really cool stuff. So if you're interested in security, go back in the show, look for Slim, look for Wolfie or ChainGuard is the episode, ChainGuard episode. And that'll talk even more about all this security stuff. All right, next on the list, moving Docker D image management to container D. This is sort of an internals one, a nerdy one. Yep. Which you and I could definitely spend a whole episode talking about how we're moving to container D as more and more functionality out of the Docker engine gets basically not really ported, but we sort of swap it out for what the container D engine does because... I mean, like I said earlier, everyone, go look mm-hmm. at your Docker systems. Container D is running underneath in all cases. It's been there for many, many years because Docker created Container D. It was their idea. Yep. So this is this is mostly about the image functionality, right? Correct. Yep. So how we're storing, pulling, and then providing the images 
at runtime. Yeah, and basically how everything's being managed under the hood. Yep. Yeah. It's actually a very low level thing that most mm -hmm. people will not have to care about. Most Docker users yep. will not have to care about this. Yep. But what it really means for us, the ones that are on the internal sides of it, is that it's going to allow for new functionality, right? And we're already starting to see some of that come out. But yep. Container D has evolved and is now, in some cases, maybe a superset of what Docker did before. And Docker wants to take advantage of that, right? That makes total sense to me. So yep. this is, I think this is still an option inside of our Docker desktop settings. It and, is, yeah. It's not the default setting right now. And there's still a little bit of work that needs to be done to, to get it fully working, a couple of edge use cases, that kind of stuff. And one thing to note too, for anybody that may wants to enable this, when you turn it on, since you know, you're swapping your image store, what that means is any of the images that you had on your previous head on your machine before you check the box to enable it, you're not going to see those images once it restarts right. and you start together. So you're basically starting from scratch, but those previous images are still there. So if you disable it and go back to it, you'll see all your previous images. So just be aware of that because if all of a sudden you're like, wait, where's all my disk space? You know, because I checked this box, it, it may be in the other image store that, that you're not seeing there. But maybe, you know, I think two different things to, to highlight there. Container D lets us start using some pretty cool functionality. And one of them that we're looking at is a, there's a, again, this is pretty low level stuff, but there's a snapshotter called a star GZ. And what that allows us to do is basically lazy initialization of the containers or the file system. So basically we can start the container before the full image is downloaded. And it's kind of mind boggling how it all works and everything. And images have to be kind of structured in a certain way to do it. But it, again, unlocks faster startup times and some, again, new capabilities that come along with this. And uh, the other thing I'll mention too is the WASM integration that we were talking about earlier needs the container D integration because it's using other container D shim and the way the images, you know, get passed around and that kind of stuff too. So again, we're starting to build functionality on this shift, this transition. And so it's a really good thing for us. Yeah, I think what you all were saying was that once it goes GA, this will be sort of a seamless transition for yep. all regular Docker desktop users. They won't even yep. really know that in the background, a major piece of functionality swapped from one binary to another, but yep. it opens up a lot of opportunities for future. I mean, this whole lazy loading thing, by the way, is like t when I first read about it, I was like, this is science fiction. There's I how does this work? Because the idea that I can run stuff before the entire image is on my system mm -hmm. is just. It makes my brain hurt a little bit. It feels like yeah. I'm, I need to go back to like math and, you know, do some core research into exactly how images are de being pulled by container D because it is that whole star stuff is star. Was it star GZ or DZ? Yep. Yeah. That's pretty cool. All right. Yeah. Slightly related to this is the, uh, the one, the last one we're going to talk about today. It's not necessarily the most amazing thing, but I am excited about it because I'm actually using it. The image rebase and basically build kit improvements. So mm -hmm. for those that aren't aware, when you run a Docker build command, nowadays, in most cases, you are actually running the build kit version or the build kit product, which is technically the new enhanced builder for all images in Docker. If you go back five, seven years, maybe even farther back than five years, but we had the original builder from Docker, which mm -hmm. we all use with Docker build and we all know and loved. And at some point you may have noticed if you're running a Docker build and a version of Docker desktop over the last few years, and then suddenly the interface looks different and you yeah. start to see blues and different colors. And you see yeah. like the seconds happening on the right side while all this stuff is folding and happening magically on the left side. Well, that's build kit. And that's one of the many, many things it does. You can force using it with the Docker build X command, right? I think that's... Yeah, the Docker build X command, Docker build X build. But this, Tonus and the team have continued to improve on build kit. 
And every release of BuildKit, there's like all this major stuff. And a lot of that we get to take advantage of in Docker, but I consider this advanced because I don't teach a lot of this stuff in my course because it really, it's not something you usually use in your first 30 or 60 days of using Docker. And yep. and here, one of the one of the two neat things that this blog post talks about is the caching. And I'll get the caching out, out of the way real quick, and then we'll talk about linking. So the caching backends, and in fact, I actually mentioned in our doc that there's even more coming because I think it's the, well, there's a new version of BuildKit. There's another version coming up that's going to add even more caching backends, including S3. I think it was Azure's built in there or something. But there's all this stuff happening in BuildKit really just for building our images. And one of the things that I use with this caching backend is in my GitHub Actions, which also I've taught on this channel before, is when I use GitHub Actions, BuildKit builds my images. It's my favorite way to build images. And Docker has official GitHub Actions for doing so. And when you do that, you can choose to cache your layers for when you rebuild, just like on your local system, it won't have to rebuild those layers. Well, you have to store those caches somewhere. And yeah. now Docker's BuildKit functionality has an increasing number of backends you can choose. And one of the ones that Docker added recently was, I think it was in the last year, was the GitHub Actions or just the GitHub cache as the backend for my layers. What that means for me is if I enable that, by the way, all these examples are in Docker's GitHub Actions. If you go look those up, all the documentation is there. But when you do that, and now that we have all these other ones like S3 and whatnot, you can now store your image layers just like you do on your local machine but you can store them in a central way for your CI tools. Because a lot of times CI tools aren't on just one system. They might be ephemeral servers or temporary servers, or you might be using something like GitHub Actions, public runners. And those images will get blown away. All those caches will get blown away when the server goes away. So we have to solve this problem of speed and performance in builds by storing our images in a cache centrally. And Docker BuildKit now does a lot of that stuff. Mm -hmm. And they're adding even more. So that's sort of my argument on the caching backend on why that's such a great new feature. Let's talk about the link feature real quick. This was hard for me to understand at first. It's a feature of the Docker file that allows me to avoid rebuilding layers. How does this work? So in many ways, what it allows you to do is say, hey, this layer isn't dependent on the parent layers. So normally when I build a container image and you know I've got my Docker file, and you know, I build my container image, great. The next time I do a build, as it's going through the steps in the Docker file, the first time it hits a layer that changes, it has to rebuild all the subsequent layers. And so you basically invalidate the cache and then you're having to rebuild everything after that. And so what Link allows you to do is say, yeah, I don't actually care about all the previous layers. And so for example, if I've got you know, some Python code or PHP code, or you know, I've got something that actually is complete independent of the rest of the dependencies, if my app source code hasn't changed, well, I want to reuse the layers from the last time I built, even if I change some of the underlying dependencies or packages. And so it allows me to basically reuse some of those layers without having to, to recompile everything. And so there's a couple examples on there. So you know, if I've got a base image and I'm just copying in some stuff and I just want to rebase all my layers on top of a new base image, you know, I can use Link, again, to be able to say, hey, I want to reuse all those previous layers but now on top of a new base. So it, it opens up some pretty, again, these are advanced use cases and you have to kind of know how your code works and you know, is it actually safe to, to reuse or do you actually need to recompile code or you know that kind of stuff. So you have to be very aware of how your application is going to work, but it opens up a lot of those pretty advanced use cases and possibilities. Yeah, 
there's some great use cases. Like you said, this is not something that you use on day one. This is why it's also not in my course, because this is when you have established a pattern of a Docker file that you know, and that you're building it, and you find yourself rebuilding it on a regular basis, and the rebuild takes some time, and not because something significant changed, it's just because of the order of things in your Docker file. Mm -hmm. And so this to me allows me in certain cases to avoid certain steps that are unnecessary that maybe could take me, you know, if I have a binary, and this is actually the one example that I used it for on a project last year, I think when it first came out, or maybe it was beginning of this year, I think it was maybe a very early beta or something. And I was trying it out for a customer where they had an image that, you know, it had a lot of stuff going on in it. It often would take seven minutes to build it because it actually had to use multiple package managers. And then it had to render out a bunch of files. And then it had to download some stuff from Git and all this other stuff. So it was downloading some binaries. It was basically a website and there were some things that needed to be in the image for people to download. And they were just binaries. Mm -hmm. Well, those binaries needed to be there, but the rest of this stuff after it didn't always need to rerun when those binaries change. And so we just needed to download essentially and put some files in the image without affecting the rest of the image. And whenever that happened, it would always cause, you know, a long cycle of having to test everything again, all this other stuff that we didn't really need because none of that stuff had actually changed. And so this was a really unique, obviously edge case, but this saves, this saved, I don't know, an hour a day of building just because it would avoid, it would basically, it would be a check for us if this happens, you know, if the link is engaged, basically don't build the rest of this stuff. And that's pretty cool. It is a little hard to understand just because it, Tonus did a great job on this by showing examples of where he shows like a go binary, where if he switches the base image from his final stage and just copies in his binary that he, if he just changes the from line, there's no reason to rebuild everything and recopy yep. because in fact, I think in his case, it's saying it doesn't even download all the layers. It just shims that in and pushes it up to registry and doesn't have to change anything. It doesn't actually have to download Alpine to rebuild if that's the only line that changed, which is pretty amazing, especially if it's a very large base image, like some of my <laughs> base images can be, they can be really big. And Node.js is for me with my customers, notorious for being over a gig in size. So uh, it's nice that yep. I have to download that. Anyway, cool stuff. Yeah. All right, so there is a ton, I'll be honest, there's a ton of other stuff that we did not cover in this show because it would take three hours and we're already running long. So if those of you that are more interested in this, one thing that I am going to do, I'm gonna update this document. I'm gonna update that with some more things that I wanna add in there. And we will reference this in the podcast as well and put this back into the YouTube live so you can come back later. If you're in Discord or on my Patreon, you will also get a notification when this is finished. But if you're curious, one of the ways that I did this work to find out was kind of a lame old way of just going through the blog. (laughs) Yep. So go through the Docker blog and I was going back in time. I personally was focusing more on the engineering functionality stuff, but because there is a lot of great community examples and whatnot, but if you wanted Mm -hmm. to go into either products or engineering and you can scroll back through the year, it's just, it's staggering to me, the velocity that you all have been able to get to and just, I mean, if you think about it, it wasn't even three years ago or barely three years ago yeah. that the company yeah. split and you were less than hundred employees. And now you're back up. I don't even know what you're at now. Close so, to yeah, we just, yeah, we just crossed 300. Okay. Um, yeah. Not long ago. So yeah. Yeah. And that means that there's more bandwidth to do all, so many of these things mm-hmm. and you all are posting. I wouldn't say you're posting daily, but there's a lot going on the blog. Yeah. Yeah, and there it's are. not just Docker run features, right? It's not just Docker command line features. This is... Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a, like you're saying that the Docker is trying to solve more 
than just container problems for developers. Yeah. So this is yeah. actually pretty cool stuff. And a lot of this stuff I learned, this is how I learned too. So a lot of people want to know how I stay up to date. I just read the blog. <laughs> a lot of times I'm learning for the first time something when I'm reading the blog post. So I, yeah. I recommend their blog. I think it's very useful for engineers and it's how I built some of the stuff for this show. Sweet. Well, thanks, Michael. Sure. This has been great. We, again, we could talk for three hours, but Michael, we can find you on Twitter. And of course, you can find him now in the Docker. Well, we've always both been in the Docker community yep. Slack. So if you just search around for Docker community Slack, you'll find the link to get into that Slack team or work group or whatever they're calling it today. And we're both there if you want to reach out. Also on my Discord server up at the top right there at devops.fan, that is the Discord server where I hang out with a bunch of smart people that I ask questions of because they're all DevOps people that are doing the things that I'm not doing. So I don't know it all. This may be a question I missed earlier. Sorry about that. The current status of the CSI plugin, when will it be a stable version be available? Is there any way to try it out if possible without breaking your local Docker installation? So I don't know how much you know about this, but I have thoughts. Typically when I hear a CSI, that's going to be in swarm-based environments. And so when Docker sold off all the enterprise pieces, part of that was the maintenance and upkeep of Swarm. So Marantis is the steward of all the Swarm-related work. And actually here in just the last couple of weeks, they published a blog post recommitting to continue to support and enhance the development of Swarm. So they're still committed to it. They still have a lot of customers that are using, they still see a lot of value out of it too. So unfortunately, I don't know the current status of the CSI plugin. You'd probably have to check in with the Marantis team over there, unless you know anything different, bro. But. So let's back up a second. So Docker has the standard Docker volumes command. And yep. that is only going to use, well, it can use other things like NFS, but it mostly is used for yep. local, the local storage driver. And yep. the Kubernetes community has created the standard, the CSI standard, that a lot of the storage vendors are all have all moved to or are moving to. And essentially, the long story short there is that Kubernetes used to ship with a bunch of storage plugins built in, but now they're removing those from the core. And those are basically add-ons and, and that's the CSI standard. And so the idea here is the Mirantis team is working on a plugin. It's actually a Docker plugin. It's not a part of the Docker binary. I actually learned a lot of this stuff just in the last week. Thanks to Drew Ernie, who's, I'm going to, I'm working with the Mirantis team to see if we can't do a show early next year. We don't have a date yet, but talk about their commitment to Swarm and basically have a new Swarm show. A Swarm show is something I usually do like once a year. But there hasn't been much movement in the last couple of years. So I think the last one I did was two years ago. And we're going to, what we want to explore is what is their plan for this CSI plugin. So technically it would be a Docker plugin command to install their CSI plugin feature. And what that really means is then Swarm, I think in their current iteration, the only one that's supported is NFS because there are no CSI drivers yet that have made their own compatible version for Docker. Mm -hmm. But the hope is that the community will be interested in this and that storage vendors might start building their own plugins that will work with Docker and Swarm. The idea would be is if, once you have that Docker plugin there, that you could potentially create new types of volumes that mm -hmm. are Swarm aware or that are off host and stored somewhere else. We've had that in years past. There's been Rex Ray, there's Port, Port Max. Portworks. Portworks, thank you. Portworks yep, right X. Yeah. And there's been a lot of storage stuff out there. The Marantis team is trying to create sort of the next gen of that. And the first step is to create this CSI plugin. So this technically has nothing to do with Docker. <laughs> Docker Inc., the company, other than them yeah. making sure that the functionality exists there so that this can be done. And I see a mm -hmm. lot of stuff in the SwarmKit repo. Sebastian has been merging a lot of updates in there. So I don't know if we're getting ready for a new Docker release. 
and that maybe we're just wanting to make sure all of the packages are up to date, the go binaries and all that, or the dependencies are up to date. But I see that happening in the Swarm repo. And like yeah. you said, Mirantis, at least twice, if not three times this year, has committed to maintaining the SwarmKit repo. And what the show I'm hoping to have is maybe going to break down, you know, is the future of Swarm maybe going to be in the Mirantis runtime? Is Mirantis going to ship it as well as Docker? Are we going to use standalone? You know, I've got a lot of Swarm fans that talk every day. In fact, just this week, we actually finally created a Swarm channel in our Discord server because all along everyone's like, I thought you love Swarm. Why don't you have a channel for Swarm? And I was like, well, it's the Docker channel. Like, it's just a part of Docker. But what we're seeing now is that Mirantis is sort of creating, you know, what we, all, we always hoped all along with for SwarmKit and to Swarm in general was that it would be a community effort and it wouldn't just be Docker. That never really happened the way I think a lot of us wanted it to happen. And yeah. all of us want to see Swarm survive. All of us want to see SwarmKit still get community love, but it is an open source project and it needs that community involvement. Thank you, Morantis, for continuing that effort. Drew is still the main developer on the SwarmKit repo and the SwarmKit integrations. So, and he's the one that made a lot of the CSI code. So we're going to try to get him on the show, maybe some more of his team members. We'll see. No promises. I'm still having conversations, but that's the reason we didn't have it in the show is because Nothing really happened on the Docker side this year, so there was nothing to yeah. really talk about. But Michael and I have been Swarm fans since the beginning. I mean, yeah. you know, I was a Swarm Classic fan back before even Swarm Mode existed. So. What? Sure, um, I didn't do much with Classic Mode, but I mean, yeah, it's interesting the number of people I still talk to that are like, I want something easier than Kubernetes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yep, I mean, Kubernetes is great, but it's not meant for everybody. It's not meant for every team. It's not meant for every organization. And so having viable options, you know, ECS, Swarm, Nomad, having a breadth of different options is a good thing for the ecosystem. So. Yeah, I like it. I want more orchestrator success, yep. more orchestrators. But obviously we have Nomad. Nomad has been on this show. We talked about it, I think, earlier this mm -hmm. year with Rosemary Wang a little bit. I think it was her, maybe someone else. But yeah, we've had HashiCorp on, I think, two, if not three times this year, talking about their various projects. And there's a ton of Nomad community, but people are very excited about that and still passionate about that product. I was always more of a Swarm person than a Nomad person. And so I'm excited to see, you know, us get some of this stuff and hopefully have it shipped in the near future. So, well, again, that was a great question. Yeah. Thank you so much for that final question. Michael, thank you again for being on the show. We're actually creating a calendar so that people can now subscribe to the calendar. It's not public yet, but we're going to get that out so that you can now go to my website and then see future guests, what the topics are going to be and what past topics that we've had. And then go find those shows in YouTube because YouTube isn't always the easiest for finding the specific video you're looking for. So that's coming up. And we've got so many other shows planned for the new year. We're already booking into January, February. Please come back and hang out with us. And of course, support us on Patreon. And then join us in the Discord server over on DevOps Fam. Thanks so much for listening. And I'll see you in the next episode.